0: The American History Podcast, Season 2, Episode 31, The Advance on Mexico City. Welcome to the American History Podcast. Hosted by Sean Warswick. All right, welcome back to the show. As always, let me thank you for listening. Without all of you, uh, it's not worth doing this. So seriously, I thank all of my listeners from the bottom of my heart. I'm recording this, it's early December, it's December the 3rd. And I just wanna wish you, your family, um, your friends, everybody out there listening, wherever you are, uh, happy holidays and Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, Happy Hanukkah, all of that. Thank you very much and I hope you guys do have a great end to this year of 2019. Um, I should say that we're coming toward the end now of season two and i would really like to do an episode where i field listener um, questions so if you can please send me any questions that you may have or maybe think up of Um, send them to sean at the american com. by the time you're listening to this that email should be back up and running Um, we figured out the problem with it and we are solving it even as i record this Um, you can also direct message me on twitter if you're following me on twitter go to uh, american hiscast i mean if you're not following me on twitter you can find me there at American HisCast. All right, now before we get started, it's time for the song of the week. And this week, um, interestingly enough, we're going to do something a little different. This week, our song of the week is the Marine Corps hymn, which I think you'll see why I chose that song um, when you get to the end of this show. All right, so here's the song and I'll see you on the other side. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the Marines hit. <laughs> Okay, So the last time we spoke, we ended the narrative with the U.S. Army at Puebla. Now, if you remember, they had made their way from Veracruz and they were able to defeat Santa Ana at Cerro Gordo, after which they were then basically able to walk into Pueblo. So over the next few months, Scott was able to gather supplies and reinforcements, basically solidifying his position. I should also mention that Scott and his command worked hard to try and ensure that Mexican civilians were treated justly thus avoiding an uprising against his forces. Now on August 7th, the US Army under the command of General Winfield Scott departed Puebla. While the Americans were busy improving their position in Mexico, Santa Ana had also been busy in and around Mexico City. Now as usual, the Mexican Congress was in disarray and the dictator had a free hand to do as he wished. In the months since the defeat at Cerro Gordo, Santa Ana had created a new army of 25,000 soldiers using the National Guard and some regulars as the backbone of his army. To fill out the ranks, he scoured the prisons and drafted poor workers in Indios and tried to make up the difference that way. Now, the Napoleon of the West later on said, he called a meeting in the palace with the leaders of the community. Here, according to his recollection, he poured out his heart to these men and was able to move them in their hearts. As historian David Clary notes, He probably flattered himself on this note. The rich ended up staying on the sidelines, while the poor had no choice about being drafted. As for the city, Santa Ana was blessed with location. Mexico City had natural strengths that the dictator could work with. You had only four practical approaches, through Texcoco to the north and northwest of the city. The second one was along the road that hugged the north shore of Lake Chalco, south of Lake Texcoco, past a hill called El Piñón Viejo or in English, it's the old crag. The third was a road through, and I'm gonna butcher this name I know, Mexico, and then finally south of Lakes Chaco and Jocho to San Agustin. So rather than have to worry about an infinite number of possibilities, the defenders had only to worry about four approaches. And by the way, if you're wondering, I will put some maps and whatnot on the website. Now, as for the Mexican army, the best and brightest made up their Corps of Engineers. One particular standout was Lieutenant Colonel Manuel Robles Pezuela, who had argued against making a stand at Cerro Gordo. At El Peñón, Robles built formidable fieldworks and batteries for 30 guns, but pointed out that the Americans could simply bypass the area by going south of Lakes Chalco and Xochomilco. This opened up some different possibilities for the Americans, and Santa Ana ordered more defensive works be built at Mexaltingo. San Antonio, and at Churubusco. The Americans, they were duly impressed. Lieutenant Theodore Laidley said, quote, I had no conception that the city was so well fortified on all sides as it really is, and their field works are beautiful, skillfully, and scientifically executed, End quote. While that was all good, Scott was not about to walk up to the front gates and ask for permission to enter, nor was he going to go through the intense defenses if he didn't have to. On August 15th, he chose to drive along the south side of Lake Chalcon, Xochimilco to the crossroads at San Agustin, from which he would weigh his options. On the Mexican side, Santa Ana now realized that Scott was bypassing his main defense. He withdrew all but a token force from El Pinon and put his troops on the road south. The big rise to the east of the city, which had seemed impregnable, looked to have been gone around, and this depressed the civilians and the soldiers. Soon, the city was all but deserted at least by the wealthy, as they fled north. Rather than give you a day-by-day account, I'm going to skip ahead to August 20th and the Battle of Churubusco, a place that was, in the words of David Clary, "designed to, destined to see carnage. The name, by the way, is a corruption of the Aztec word for war eagle. Anyway, it was here that 8,400 American soldiers would confront 3,800 Mexican defenders. Those defenders included the famous San Patricio Battalion. Now, this was a about 200 soldiers who were immigrants and expatriates of European descent. Most, if not all of them, happened to be deserters from the U.S. Army. Now, to keep it straight, I want you to think of the battle as three separate actions. There's the main attack on the bridge, the attack on the convent, and then a turning movement to Portales to the north of the bridge, led by generals, Brigadier Generals James Shields and Franklin Pierce. Yes, Pierce would be elected 14th President of the United States, just in case you thought that name sounded familiar. That's why it does. The village on the south bank of the rio Churubusco was a small collection of whitewashed adobe homes with red tiled roofs. The dominant structure in the village was the walled Convento de San Mateo. The river itself was full from the recent rains and it's sparkled in the sun. This would be a good place decided Santa Ana to cover his retreat from the area and back to Mexico City. Now, there had been some fighting in the area near Churubusco and Santa Ana was attempting to move his troops into a better defensive position he ordered three of his best generals to keep the evacuation route open at all costs until the last possible moment. To cover the retreat, he put General Perez and 2,200 men on the south bank of the river across the road and 300 yards from the monastery. Thus you had about 8,000 North Americans bearing down on 2,000 Mexican soldiers, give or take. Now this day was a day of chaotic fighting in and around the area as the Americans moved forward and the Mexicans moved back scott ordered an, atta- an attack on the convent which had some decent defenses he also ordered worth's division to hit the tete de Pont, or the bridgehead while twigs men hit the convent having said that this day was much more chaotic than what you probably think first there were mexicans who had been in trenches to the south who having received orders to retreat spiked their guns and pulled out moving north mostly consisting of untrained militia they were not prepared to conduct a fighting retreat A regiment of U.S. Army regulars ended up attacking their column, splitting it into two parts. This was seen by the Americans to the south, who then decided to charge. They ended up taking four guns and a Mexican general, as well as a few others prisoner. At the same time, you had Mexican forces from the village of San Angel to the west. Mixed into their midst were civilians, servants, camp followers, etc. And they were also retreating they were coming up, turning the road to mud and converging on the soldiers who were moving north. So all of this appeared to be an army that was being routed and Anglo observers informed Scott of the situation. At this point, he ordered all American forces forward, much to the objection of his engineers. They wanted a chance to scout the road ahead and try to figure out a sensible plan instead of rushing forward hilly nilly. For some reason, Scott, who was usually a man who favored sound planning, decided to bull forward instead. In the end, this would cost the United States a lot of blood and some of his engineers would never forgive him for this. On the other side, you had Generals Rincon and Anaya and they were as good as they came. They ordered their men to hold their fire until the enemy was close. Twig's men were the first to arrive and they made the disorganized charge their general believed would do the job. They were met with a hail of heavy musketry. To make matters worse for the US Army, the Mexicans had the San Patricios with them, many of whom were trained by the North Americans so they understood their tactics. Furthermore, these guys were highly motivated not to be captured. Remember, the price for desertion could be death. Now, part of the problem was that the Americans underestimated untrained militia, who, just like those at the Battle of Bunker Hill, stood in productive positions under good leadership. Scott, perhaps like the British in the Revolutionary War, thought that the Mexicans would run at their first shot because he was arrogant. Instead of running, these troops stood their ground and gave the Americans the fight of their lives. Scott, stubborn to the end, barged forward again. He sent troops under Pierce to try and get around and in back of the Mexican defenders. This movement eventually bogged down in the cornfields and the marshes on the other side of the river. And to make matters worse, Santa Ana sent about 2,200 men and 1,500 cavalry to threaten them. Now, part of Pierce's group was another group that was under the command of Brigadier General Shields. They broke and ran for cover while those under Pierce remained hunkered down. Now, as I noted earlier, the numbers were in favor of the North Americans and at some point those greater numbers were going to make a difference. It did. The Mexicans began to lose heart at the bridgehead, something General Worth could not tell, but he did notice they shortened up their line. This was due to the fact that they had to send men out to deal with the movement of Shields and Pierce. Another problem for the Mexicans is they began to run low on ammunition. General Rincon sent messengers to Santa Ana to request resupply, however, the self-titled Soldier of the People sent them the wrong caliber. As the situation became desperate, only the San Patricios had a solid supply of the right caliber of ammunition, and they fought like tigers. The engagement lasted more than three hours, with the San Patricios tearing down the surrender flag one after the other. Worth put two guns onto the road to bombard the convent compound, which went on for about 15 minutes before the defenders moved a gun to return fire. However, this thinned the defenses at the southern end of the compound, which was noticed by North Americans. An infantry regiment hit them in this weak spot, climbed over the parapet, and turned the scene into a butcher's yard until, thankfully, a captain in the US Army raised a white handkerchief on his sword. The Mexican soldiers immediately threw down their weapons, and the San Patricios had no choice but to do so as well They were out of ammunition. In the aftermath, the U.S. captured almost 1,300 men, including three generals and the leader of the San Patricios, Lieutenant Colonel Francisco Rosenda Moreno, as well as seven artillery pieces. The members of the San Patricios Battalion were court-martialed by the U.S. Army for desertion. In two separate courts-martial, 50 men were sentenced to hang, having deserted after war had been declared. Those who deserted earlier were to receive 50 lashes instead. Scott did not continue the pursuit into Mexico City, saying he was willing to leave something to Mexico and thus halted his men at the gates of the city. I should note before we move on, this was the bloodiest day of the entire war. Out of 8,500 men engaged, Scott lost 133 killed and 865 wounded. Santa Ana's army took a far worse beating, losing over one third of its men, around 10,000 in all. Scott reported the Mexican army lost 4,297 killed and wounded, with 2,637 prisoners taken, including eight generals. None of his organizations survived the battle as ongoing entities. But this does not account for those who simply disappeared or the dead and wounded refugees. Most telling of all, when a head count was taken a few days later in Mexico City, the Mexican army had about 14,000 privates remaining in the army, about half of what they had available before Scott had marched out of Puebla scott could have marched forward through and maybe taken the city but he did not so in the aftermath of churubusco santana received a note from scott demanding that he surrender the city now one might wonder why not ask him to surrender the mexican army well that was because scott believed the army was the key to his power and that santana was needed in getting a final peace brokered for his part the dictator assembled what members of his cabinet remained in town and sent the foreign minister, Francisco Pacheco, to summon the British minister. Santa Ana asked Bankhead, the British ambassador in Mexico, to intervene with Scott to prevent the city from being sacked. This the Englishman refused to do. However, he did agree to writing a note to the American representative in the area, Nicholas Trist. Pacheco wrote a note to the American Secretary of State as well. In this letter, the Mexican foreign minister finally agreed to the American proposal the previous spring to open negotiations. Scott had no idea what the situation was with the Mexican government, so he moved siege guns closer to the city. On the morning of August 21st, Scott, who was riding toward the village of Tacubaya, met a gorgeously furnished carriage carrying Brigadier General Ignacio Mora y Villamil. The general had crossed the lines under a flag of truce, carrying the letters from both Ambassador Bankhead and Pacheco. Furthermore, Villamil made it known that Santa Ana wanted to negotiate an armistice something he should have requested formally, not orally. Nonetheless, Scott, who wanted to end hostilities, offered a truce himself. Quote, too much blood had already been shed in this unnatural war between the two great republics of this continent, end quote. He wrote to the Mexican dictator. In his letter to Santa Ana, he reminded the Napoleon of the West that Trist was with him, quote, with full powers to negotiate a treaty, end quote. To help grease the wheels, so to speak, Scott was willing to agree to a short armistice. He would wait two days for an answer while at the same time continuing to move his men towards the city. Now the problem with the idea of negotiating at this point is that in reality there was no government in Mexico, just a flock of factions. The first one who showed any intention of dealing with the Americanos would be attacked by the others even before an armistice could be signed. To complicate matters, Santa Ana and those advising him created a list of items to be discussed which were to be handed to Trist upon the opening of talks. These included demands that the United States drop all claims against Mexico, accept the Nueces river as the boundary, lift the naval blockade, abandon California, pay damages caused by invasion, prohibit slavery in any territory ceded by Mexico, accept a guarantee of any peace treaty by a commission of foreign powers, let the San Patricio prisoners go, and finally return all property seized by the United States. Needless to say, Santa Ana, the savior of the nation, and the Napoleon of the West, was well aware that all of these would be rejected out of hand. So that brings up the question, why do this? The document was truly meant for the domestic audience, to satisfy the diehards. Santa Ana was shrewd, and while Trist thought the dictator would begin negotiations once his own position was secure, the reality was this underestimated just how hostile the general populace was to the idea of surrendering any territory to their northern neighbor. The first meeting took place on August 27th. There was a bit of diplomatic wrangling, but Trist presented the Mexicans with a summary of the proposals he would offer. After a couple of days of talks within the hierarchy of Santa Ana's regime, they agreed to give their own commissioners the ability to make any concessions they thought necessary, but the obstinacy continued. For example, the revised instructions told the Mexican commissioners to not give up on the Nueces as the boundary, but they could agree to an uninhabited neutral zone between the Rio Bravo and the Nueces. They all could also not cede California or New Mexico, but they could offer the U.S. a, quote, trading factory at San Francisco. The Mexicans were surely deluded if they thought the Americans would seriously meet any of these demands while their army was on the doorstep of the capital city. To his merit, Trist continued to try and negotiate with his counterparts, but by September 6, he realized the game was up and the talks ended. Trist notified Scott, who then sent a message to Santa Ana informing the leader that the armistice would be, would end in two days' time. Part of the problem is that neither Trist nor Scott understood that, in the end, Santa Ana did not have the authority to conclude a peace with the United States. And furthermore, the Mexicans were not ready to end the fighting. Again, the fact that each side was talking past the other meant the poor were going to have to suffer. On the morning of September 8th, a large number of Mexican horsemen were seen around a group of low, massive stone buildings known as El Molino del Rey, or the King's Mill. At this point, they were about 1,000 yards west of the castle of Chapultepec, which was itself two miles from the actual gates of Mexico City. At 0545, General Worth sent his men forward. The fighting was over by 1 p.m., but the victory was a pyrrhic one for the North Americans, as Scott still lacked an assault path into the city, although his men had destroyed Molina del Rey. It was now obvious they would have to assault Chapultepec. Furthermore, the casualties on both sides testified to the fierceness of the fighting. Wirth lost one quarter of his division, with 116 dead, 665 wounded. 18 were missing. One brigade lost half of its officers and one third of its men. Historian David Clary, whom we've mentioned on numerous occasions, describes the aftermath of the battle. The scene was ghastly, blood pooling, bodies and parts of bodies in and around the building, smoke rising from the ruins of Casamata. Lieutenant John Hames Peck said, quote, our troops fought like heroes and were mowed like grass, end quote. Another witness said it was a sad mistake. Both Santa Ana and Scott faced dwindling armies. After the Battle of Molino del Rey, even though the United States had driven the Mexican forces from their positions around the base of Chapultepec, there was still a division among Scott's officers about how to proceed. Again, according to Clary, Scott favored the Southern approach as did Brigadier General Pillow. The other commanders, after they examined the reports from the engineers, began to favor the Southern approach as well. General Twiggs, however, wanted to take, take Chapultepec and the Western gates. Eventually it came down to whichever way meant The least amount of time and labor to to build batteries. Which way offered that? The western way was the reply from the engineers. Thus the decision was made to attack Chapultepec and the western gates of the city. On the other side, Santa Ana realized Chapultepec was an important point of defense for the city. Sitting on top of a 200-foot tall hill, it had, in recent years, been used by the Mexican military academy. However, the castle was only defended by 400 men. This so-called castle had been the summer palace for the Spanish viceroys in the days of the empire. The building itself dated back to the late 18th century. The perimeter would require at least 2,000 men to defend, thus the 46 cadets who were housed there were ordered to evacuate, but not all of them left. The Mexican leader was able to reinforce the hill with an additional 800 infantry and 13 small bore guns. Scott decided that unlike the previous two times, he would go all out, leaving Twig's division and Riley's brigade to guard the right flank. Everything else was to be concentrated on Chapultepec. Engineers spent the day building batteries to pound the fortress. These artillery pieces hammered away at the castle for 14 hours. The castle walls falling down around them. The commander, Major General Nicolas Bravo Rueda, asked for reinforcements, but Santa Ana, not truly believing the Americans would assault the hill, refused. Mexicans never forgave him for this. Now, to be fair to the dictator, Brigadier General Quitman led a group of forces near the southern gates of the city, a feint that was designed to hold Santana's attention. Furthermore, he received reports that Scott was intending to attack the southeast corner of the city and thus diverted guns and troops from the west. Of course, he himself was far from the actual danger as possible. So by the time it was apparent what was actually happening, the guns at Chapultepec had already been taken out and what few men survived were too exhausted to put up a good fight. The attack was going well enough but Pillow panicked when his men stalled below the castle. Lucky for him, Quitman came to his rescue, coming up from the south and sending forces in to assist the attack, including a large party of marines and four field artillery pieces. For a time, the Mexicans made the Americanos pay dearly, but soon the defenders were too few and the Yankees too many. A veritable tidal wave of screaming Anglos attacked the hill, storming over the parapet and hitting the main gate with all they had. The fight for the hill, of course, inspired the line from the U.S. Marine Corps hymn that goes from the halls of Montezuma, and although it predates the war, it also inspired the blood stripe on their dress uniform trousers. The Marines suffered heavy casualties in the battle, with 90% of their officers killed in action. The fight for the castle inspired another legend, this one on the Mexican side that of the boy heroes. According to this story, six cadets from the military academy refused to evacuate and died in its defense. Supposedly, one of the boys wrapped himself in the flag rather than surrender and jumped from the walls to his death. In the end, the grounds were littered with the dead and wounded, many of them with their throats cut by vengeful American soldiers. To stop the slaughter, General Bravo surrendered to a lieutenant of the New York Regiment around 9.30 in the morning. Scott soon arrived, and he was mobbed by troops overjoyed that he hadn't blundered a third time. The Americans had lost another 800 men killed or wounded, and the Mexicans as many as 1,800 total. Surgeon Richard McSherry was appalled by what he saw when he entered the castle grounds. Quote, their mangled bodies lay helpless, heaped in masses. Some among them indeed were not yet dead, but were gasping in the last agonies, with their dark faces upturned to the sun, writhing and struggling in death, like fish thrown on the shore by the angler. Crushed heads, shattered limbs, torn up bodies, with brains, hearts, and lungs exposed, and eyes torn from their sockets, were among the horrible visions that first arrested attention. End quote he would never be able to get this sight out of his mind for the rest of his life. As the mopping up began, Quitman and Worth both ordered their forces to rush down the causeway toward the city. Santa Ana by nightfall realized his position was untenable and he decided to evacuate the city and give his army, what was left of it anyway, the chance to rest and recover. By midday on September 14th, 1847, Scott himself rode triumphantly into the city square and the capital of Mexico had fallen. Okay, on that pleasant note, it's time to call it a day. I don't want to, this episode to get too large, and we're already far over 20 minutes. Next time, we will discuss what historian John S. D. Eisenhower referred to as Nicholas Trist's War, the occupation of Mexico, and the signing of the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. Thank you very much for listening, and have a great day.